We want to give this president the opportunity to do something historic for our country. That's a clip from a video of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi speaking at a Washington think tank event in May. It's a video that went viral on social media, attracting more than a million views. Only that's not what Pelosi actually sounded like. The tape of Pelosi speaking was deliberately slowed down to make her sound like she was sluggish and slurring her words, maybe drunk. It was the latest example of the danger of fake videos, a new arsenal in the global information wars. A just-released report from NYU University warns that both foreign and domestic actors are likely gearing up for next year's presidential race by developing increasingly deceptive ways to distort the news, manipulate audio and video feeds, and poison the minds of American voters. It would be a replay of sorts of what the Russians did in 2016, only more sophisticated and potentially a lot more effective. Are social media companies doing enough to combat the threat? And is the U.S. government paying enough attention? We'll talk to the author of the NYU report. And we'll talk to one of the FBI's most celebrated former agents, Ali Soufan, about the recent Justice Department Inspector General report on former FBI Director James Comey and the impending Afghan peace deal, all on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So we're going to be talking about two reports on this show, and both of them are pretty scary in their own ways. The uh, disinformation report from Paul Barrett of NYU really lays out all the emerging technologies and techniques that disinformation folks, both foreign... if <laughs> foreign governments, Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese are likely to be doing in uh, in 2020. And the uh, Inspector General report for its own reasons, I found pretty chilling because of its articulation of FBI rules, which basically the Inspector General is saying forbids current and former FBI agents from talking about FBI matters without advance permission from the bureau. I mean, that's all we've done in our career. <laughs> you know, mean, yeah. is call you know current and former FBI uh, officials yeah. uh, to get information right. about what they were doing. Right, you know? and and it's how we've done some of our best stories about what the FBI yeah. was up to, both yeah. positive and negative for the bureau. But um, the idea that we can't. Uh, call at former FBI agents or email them and talk to them about what's going what what they were doing at the FBI cases they worked on you know yeah, that I, that yeah. is a real uh, would be a real blow to the public's right to know if it was yeah. rigidly enforced I thought that was a, in some ways a, for that reason and other reasons kind of a troubling report I think that uh, the inspector general Michael Horowitz had a bit of a forest for the trees uh, 
problem. Right. Uh, I mean, the reality is that you know Comey wanted to get these memos out because the president of the United States was obstructing, in his view, and I think there was evidence to support that, a pretty serious investigation. You know, our friend and regular skullduggery guest, Matt Miller, said an interesting thing, I think, maybe on Twitter, which is it was kind of like giving Comey a speeding ticket on the way to telling a village that a fire was coming and it was going to burn it down. Right, right. Now, look, that doesn't mean Comey is blameless here. And Not I at all. To, to be Not at all. Defending James Comey, I think, you know, his judgment can be questioned about a lot of things. And we're going to uh, see, in perhaps, in the next Inspector General report, right. some of that laid out. We'll see. Right, right. But what they nicked him for here, or at least the way they articulated what the rules are for current and former FBI. FBI agents was pretty troubling, yeah. and we'll get into that with Ollie. Yeah. A couple of other matters we want to quickly mention. Uh, we've talked a couple times on this show about Greg Craig, who was charged with essentially lying to the Justice Department about the work he did on behalf of Paul Manafort to make the Ukrainian government's persecution of one of its political opponents look better than it really was. Uh, he's just been acquitted. Not a huge surprise. I sat in on um, the cross-examination of Greg Craig, and while I thought the prosecutors had some stuff that didn't make Greg Craig look great, uh, the idea that it was enough to turn him into a convicted felon fell way short. Didn't seem like it was too tough for this D.C. jury. Uh, I think they deliberated for four hours. Right. I I noticed, and, you know, I I noticed from the get-go the prosecutors were going to have a problem because when I sat in on the cross-examination, and Greg Craig would occasionally uh, make comments uh, that, intended to be amusing or flip. And there was at least one juror that was laughing at everything he said. And I think when you see that, is that this guy's on your side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, look, it, yeah. it was not, I think it wasn't a strong case from the beginning. We actually had our former Newsweek colleague, Stuart Taylor, uh, on the show, I think right right after the indictment. Right. Um, and uh, he really eviscerated the case. Uh, he made right. a pretty persuasive argument that this was a case that never should have been brought. And in fact, and I think this speaks to the weakness of the case, it was brought to the Southern District of New York. And they basically passed on it, and it ended up with the uh, U.S. attorney in Washington. Right. Now, Greg Craig, of course, was of interest because he's you a know, longtime Washington lawyer, Demo- leading Democrat, Barack Obama's first White House counsel, led the uh, impeachment defense in the Senate for Bill Clinton. So it's a blow to go after a high-profile figure like that and lose. I wonder if this is going to impact the still looming decision about whether they indict Andrew McCabe, the former deputy director of the FBI. Remember, Horowitz referred the case to the Justice Department criminal division saying, concluding that McCabe had lied about whether he had authorized a leak to the media. It seems like it's a marginal case based on what we know about it right now. And obviously, it's not a slam dunk where they would have already indicted him. But after losing this one, would they want to stick? Will Bill Barr, the attorney general, authorize another case that could blow up in the Justice Department's face? Yeah, that's a good point. These false statements cases are always tough to bring in the first place. So they may be having second thoughts. Lots to talk about. But uh, before we do, I want to remind all our listeners that they can follow us at Pod on Twitter. And by the way, if you've got 
comments or uh, questions that you'd like us to address on the show, have at it, and we'll uh, we'll take them under advisement. <laughs> We are now joined by uh, one of our favorite FBI agents, uh, Ali Safan, for years. The uh, Bureau's uh, chief expert on al-Qaeda, worked many of his al-Qaeda cases, worked with James Comey at one point, went back when he was the U.S. attorney here in the Southern District in New York. Ali, welcome back to Skullduggery. Always great to be with you guys. So we had this blistering report from the Justice Department Inspector General taking Comey to task the other day for his dissemination of his memos that he wrote about his conversations with the president. I want to read you just a couple of lines from that report, the conclusion, the responsibility to protect sensitive law enforcement information falls in large part to the employees of the FBI. Former Director Comey failed to live up to his this responsibility by not safeguarding sensitive information obtained during the course of his FBI employment and by using it to create public pressure for official action Comey set a dangerous example for the over 35,000 current FBI employees and many thousands of more FBI employees who similarly have access to the knowledge of non-public information Ali do you agree it's an IG investigation and when the IG, um, they when, when they do an investigation, they always look for every single thing that a person did wrong, and they include it in their investigation. But towards the end, the conclusion of the IG investigation, should we prosecute or not? Did they violate the law or not? Did they divulge classified information or not? Was very clear. It said, and I quote here, We found no evidence that Comey or his attorneys released any of the classified information contained in any of the memos to members of the media. So basically... To members of the media. They say he did disseminate that to three of his lawyers. Three of his his lawyers. But in this it said, nor his lawyers. So it wasn't him or his attorneys released any of the... Who disclosed to the press. They said that they don't, they don't have right. any evidence that the lawyers, right. his lawyers, released any classified information to the media. Look, towards the end, <laughs> I want to have the tale of two reports. You have a report against the president of the United States by another former director of the FBI, D- Director um, Mueller. In that report, he found that the president of the United States on numerous occasions broke the law, broke the law. Well, he did not. He did not conclude that. Mueller well, said he, he he was barred from reaching such a conclusion but, but, because of Justice Department policy that a president and I cannot come be to indicted. That. I, I disagree with your assessment in that. Te- on technicality, you might be right. But right. they said, okay, if he wasn't the president of the United States, will he be prosecuted? When he testified, he said yes, he will be prosecuted. He can be prosecuted. He walked that back. He walked that back. That's what he originally said to, I think it was Ted Lieu in the morning before judiciary, then intelligence. He said, I misspoke. I was saying we did not reach a conclusion as to whether the president violated the law because of this Justice Department policy. He did not reach a conclusion. However, right. if he, if that person was not the president of the United States, he could have been prosecuted. But because yes. of the attorney general's policy or because of the OLC policy right. that basically states, and this is a policy, this is not the law, it states that you cannot indict a sitting president, that's why, mm-hmm. right? That's right. why Correct. he couldn't indict him. Well, he, So he, he found out 
which means that there are evidence, and I think there's about nine of them in the report, where the president obviously, right, did something he shouldn't do as a president, right? Yes. And if he wasn't a president, right. if he was Ali Sufan or Michael Esikoff, mm -hmm. he could have been prosecuted. Right. But because he's a president, mm -hmm. he cannot be indicted. He needs to be impeached. And Mueller made right. it very clear in his report, and when he testified, that's up to Congress to take over the investigation now on what happened with him. This is one report, right? The moment it came out, immediately they said total exoneration. Total exoneration of a guy on multiple occasions broke the law just because they couldn't indict him. There's another report in Comey that said they found no evidence he released the classified information to the media, which is the main substance of the IG report. And they said, see, leaker and liars. Come on, if you guys want to be fair, be fair for You're everyone. not suggesting there's hypocrisy in Washington, <laughs> Can are you, Can you believe that? But I think <laughs> I'm suggested that also people in the media need to basically keep that in mind but when they are talking oh. about Comey and when they are talking about Trump and keep in mind the situation of what happened. The reason Comey wrote these memos is basically more dangerous than him releasing the memos. The reason he wrote this memos is because he realized, my God, this guy, this president of the United <laughs> States is breaking the law. Yeah. Right. 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 And he wanted to or, document it. And how do you document it in the FBI? You open a case on the president of the United States? No, you do it on your personal computer. I just want to put yeah. that memo that that happened between me and him. Now, did he do the right thing? Did he violate policy? Didn't he? I, I, I don't know the details. I don't know. Maybe well, actually, he violated that's an important in, question. But in, do you think he did the right thing? I mean, that you know, I think what he would say is... This is bogus. I was publicly faulted by the inspector general for making public the fact that the president of the United States was trying to obstruct a very serious investigation. And, and, and that's so maybe something. He, so did he do the right thing? Uh, yes, because because of his action, because of Comey's actions, we had Mueller. And because of Mueller's report, we know that, yes, the executive branch or the president violated the law in at least nine different occasions. And because of that we have the hearings that we have in Congress. Now, people didn't follow up on that. The House doesn't have the backbone to impeach. Uh, a lot of uh, politics into, into this situation. That's a totally different situation. But yes, I mean, look, you find something illegal. You find something suspicious. You want to document that. And uh, when somebody attacks you and start destroying your credibility and the credibility of the organization that you represent, you know, what you do is you try to fight back. And he fought back. And the inspector general found out that he did not release any classified information. This is the bottom line. The bottom line in this, was there any classified information released? Okay. There was none, according to the IG. Now, did he violate all these different rules and regulations? And that, my God, you know, the B in the FBI stands for bureaucracy. There are so <laughs> many rules and regulations and policy. And the inspector general going to find something on anyone that they open an investigation on. You know, nobody can be 100 percent kosher in, in, in obeying all the different rules. We don't even know all the different rules. But I'm sure he violated a couple of rules and they mentioned it in the report. But did he, he violate the right, law? Right. He violated no. his non-disclosure agreement, which all FBI employees sign. Yeah. But violating right. the, the, the non-disclosure agreement is the non-disclosure agreement is mostly about classified information. 
They said he didn't violate classified information. He talked about the FBI. He talked about things that was happening in the FBI. That is a debatable issue, and that's why probably they didn't want it to prosecute because that's a debatable issue. You know, now we cannot talk about something that's not classified, uh, something that's being discussed in the public domain, and he put his input on it as an F as a FBI director or a former FBI director. I, these are things that we have to keep in mind. I'm not saying it, it was retroactively classified. This he is the content of one of the memos yeah. was retroactively exactly. classified it, because it included the name of a foreign leader or leader of a foreign country that the president had right. mentioned. In and, his and at the time, Comey meeting. was the FBI director. So the decision whether it was classified or not right. uh, flowed from the president down through Right. The director of the FBI. I mean, look, so. you know, I, I mean, look, I mean, any classified information, releasing classified information is against the law. And a person who did it should be held accountable. I don't know the details of the Comey investigation, but I know that the IG said he did not release any classified information. And I, I have to say, um, that's what on, I know. On the non-disclosure rule, I found there was just one passage in that report that I found absolutely chilling as a journalist and as a member of the public in which Horowitz, Michael Horowitz, the IG says, before disclosing FBI information outside of the FBI for non-official purposes, current or former FBI personnel must obtain with limited exceptions advanced permission from the FBI. This policy applies to any type of disclosure, whether oral, written, or electronic, FBI employees agreed to be bound by this requirement. Now, how many times have I, as a reporter, called you, and I'm sure hundreds of other reporters sure, who yeah, have yeah, called yeah. you, to talk about FBI matters when you were in the Bureau? I should point out that Ali is a former FBI agent, not a current FBI agent. But you have talked freely about your experiences yeah, in the FBI. You've written a book about your experiences books. in the FBI. Uh, There's a story on the wall there from Newsweek, a brilliant story, as I remember, uh, <laughs> about your days in the FBI. Yeah, written by that guy, Michael Essek. Brilliantly yeah, yeah. edited, oh, by the way, yeah, yeah, by, yeah, by Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and, you know, the idea that we would not, we as journalists would not be able to talk to people like you it seems to me would severely restrict the public's right to know about what happens in federal law enforcement. I, I, I think, look, I think it is about classified information, sensitive yeah. information, right. law enforcement, sensitive information. Right. If this is how they want to run the IG's office, they're going to be having investigations on hundreds and hundreds of people who are on TV all the time as former FBI agents talking about yeah. what the FBI will do in foreign counterintelligence investigation mm -hmm. or in domestic terrorism investigation or an active shooter investigation. Yeah. What is the FBI policies and rules? Yeah. Uh, how do they deal with local law enforcement? We see that on Fox. We see that on MSNBC, on CNN, on CBS, on ABC. Many FBI, former FBI agents talking to the public based on their experience that they had in the FBI. Yes, when it comes to classified information, sensitive information. Or grand jury information. Or grand jury information, absolutely. I agree 100% with what the inspector general is mm. saying. Right. When I was talking about my experiences when I left, all the things, even my statement to Congress was approved by the FBI. My op-eds used to be approved by the FBI. I have no problem with that, and the process is very, very simple. But the sentence that you, you read, mm -hmm. it talks about any FBI information, right. not sensitive well, FBI, okay, for, so not classified. Let me just stop you for a this second, is this is I, I put some question marks on because this because there is one of the memos that's in question here 
the IG said was law enforcement sensitive, and this has to do with uh, yeah. Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor. And when he's and this is the meeting that that he has with that Comey has with Trump, where Trump says, "Can you see clear to letting him go?" Right, uh, and that. He Comey memorializes that because he sees that as a potential obstruction of justice. And Horowitz says that had to do with a potential criminal investigation, which it became, and that therefore was law enforcement sensitive. Is that not a problem? I am I, I am not a lawyer, but at the time, you know, he's saying potentially it might be down the road yeah. from what you're saying yeah. now. I mean, potentially everything might be something. And and actually I should say, <laughs> I mean I, I, so I am not on saying, the other side, look, I think that Sally Yates uh, had already had made public the had, fact that the FBI had interviewed exactly, right. Flynn so, about his conversations with the Russian ambassador. Right, and and it was known. It was a public information at right. that time. So I, I think one of the things that you have to keep in mind, I'm not saying that Comey, I, I probably have a lot of criticism for Comey on different things, but I am saying that when it comes to this, towards the end, an inspector general will look if a person broke the law or not. Can they be indicted or not? Are they to be prosecuted or not? And it's very clear in the report that they said he did not share classified information. He did not break any law, and they're not going to do any prosecution. Now, did he violate policy, internal policy in the FBI from their view of things? Okay, they did. And if you look at any inspector general, I think there is – I don't recall a red one inspector general that said, oh, the guy's like clear like a whistle. They didn't do anything. Because <laughs> yeah. if somebody is clear a whistle, they didn't do anything, that's when they are not working. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, right. Well, so, that's actually a, an interesting point because, you know, if FBI agents spend all their time having to navigate these bureaucratic rules and regulations and, and, and policies, right. then, you know – it becomes harder to do their well, job. I'll give you an it, example. it creates a kind of risk I'll aversion. You, I'll, I'll give you an example. There is sometimes when you do an interview, there is a specific days. Like I, I don't remember from the top of my head, four or five days, and you have to finalize the interview in a report. Sometimes when you're sitting working in, in a place like Yemen, for example, you're doing 10 different interviews at the same time. There is no way you can finalize that interview in five days. So if there is something happened because you know, uh, because you had a car accident and the IG started an investigation to see if you're wrong or right, you know, and they start looking at all your records. They say, oh, this guy, he was waiting 10 days to finalize his report. He yeah. broke the rules of the FBI, you right. know. I mean, you can go down that path, but towards the end, did anybody break the law? That's a totally different situation. And I go, I go to two reports. One report, it was obvious that the person who broke the law, but we cannot say they broke the law because he's the president of the United States. Only Congress can say they broke the law. And one guy did not break the law. This is the official investigation, did not break the law. And they say, hey, he's a leaker and a liar, see? It's, it's, it's very obvious. I think we just need to be fair when we talk about this. Comey is not an angel. Comey did a lot of things that can be questionable. Such as um, what? You know, I, I mean, you know, there are other stuff, for example, about the, um, you know, when that happened, for example, you know, when the president asked him, uh, somebody can make the argument, why didn't you go directly to Congress? Or why didn't you resign immediately when something like this happened? Uh, why didn't you, you know, so we can second guess, yeah. you know, but towards the end, it's very difficult to, to put ourselves in his shoes. Yeah. Uh, not every day the president of the United States. It was an unorthodox it's, uh, it's thing to do. Unorthodox. To go to a, your friend who's a lawyer and ask him to then leak 
um, you know, memos but we, to the but New York we Times. live we live in unorthodox times. It is unorthodox to have president talking to the <laughs> FBI director in a way that, hey, you know, as if it's John Gotti talking, hey, man, send me the ball. He's a good guy. Let yeah. him go. <laughs> you know, what, true, you know true. I mean, it's, it's an right. unorthodox now, situation I, I for somebody out. like Comey who spent his years, you know, in, in DOJ and in the FBI. Yeah. And, you know, like, I, I mean, I, I mean, among FBI people, say, probably I will do a lot of criticism against some of the stuff that Comey did during his time period in the FBI, from trusting the wrong people to, you know, and the handling a lot of, of Hillary the handling, email investigation. Exactly. The Hillary. But, but now I'm not talking about all these things. We're not talking about James Comey. We're talking about the inspector general report on James Comey. And for me, the inspector general report on James Comey uh, did not say that James, James Comey lied. They had a problem with the way he told the truth. Yeah. And this is two different things, right? And he, he, didn't, didn't, he didn't immediately disclose to the FBI that he had these memos at home. There, there were things that clearly he but, could be you know, put yourself second in, guessed you're about. The director of the, you're right. the director of the FBI. You go back to all your lieutenants yeah. and you want to tell them, hey, the president of the United States just did that or yeah, it's a weird, awkward situation. I mean, the only time that we had situation like this, I believe, on, on that scale was with Nixon. And at the time, the assistant director of the FBI really violated the law, you know, deep throat. He, Mark he Felt actually, he actually gave to Bob the information Woodward. to the yes. media yes. in order to protect the nation and protect the institutions. But that's a, that guy really violated the law. <laughs> but Comey was in a very awkward position with this. Did he do it? I, I, look, I think the intention, his intention was to protect the institution, to protect the FBI. His intention was to protect the DOJ. I think he decided to fall on the sword for DOJ during the Hillary investigation, and he paid dearly for it, and the nation paid dearly for it. So there's a lot of things that we can criticize Comey and say, okay, is this right or is this wrong? But towards the end, let's look at the inspector general conclusion. We found no evidence that Comey or his attorneys released any of the classified information contained in the memo to members of the media. He did not release classified information. This is the bottom line of the inspector general report. Now, he was speeding at one day and he violated the law. That's a totally different situation. Let me ask you, this is the first of two inspector general reports that are expected. There's another one coming that a lot of people in Washington think is going to be much more serious and consequential, and that yeah. is the report on the uh, FISA process and the uh, FISA warrant that the FBI got on Carter Page, a foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign. You've had a lot of experience with FISA because right. you were doing all sorts of uh, sure. classified investigations relating to terrorism, and the question there is whether the FBI improperly used an opposition research document, i.e., the Steele dossier and presented it to the FISA court as a basis for getting that warrant when that opposition research document had not been corroborated by the FBI. What are you expecting from that report and how serious, if the, if the IG finds that the FBI violated policies there, whether you think that would be more serious? Well, yeah, if, if they found that they violated policies on FISA, that probably going to, you know, open a can of form on the issue of FISA by itself. I, I, I don't know. I don't want to prejudge what the inspector general will say. But I think from what I hear from people that that dossier was not the cornerstone of the FISA 
on the, that specific uh, subject. But I don't yeah. know. I mean, I don't want to talk about something right. that I really it don't know. It clearly was in there because I mean, some when of it I has was, been so, Look, yeah, yeah. It, it is in there, but is it that the main reason it's in there? Is it, it is the whole FISA based on that, based on singular information from a singular source? That is a totally different topic than if it's included in the FISA application, right? It's two different things. My experience with FISA, it's very strict. There's a lot of things you need to do on a, in your local office and then in headquarters and then in VI director, you know, they, they sign the FISA, it goes to the attorney general, and then you have the FISA court, four different judges. Those judges, by the way, are all Republicans, all conservative judges, and they are very strict. And if they know that you're lying to them or trying to deceive them, your career is over. So my experience with the FISA, is, with the FISA court, with the FISA in general, uh, the FISA process is very different than what I read now in the papers. And I'm not involved in that because I'm not in the FBI and I don't have any uh, inside information on that. All right, let me change topics quickly and ask you about something that um, seems pretty significant but is uh, not getting a whole lot of attention um, in the press and is not a big part of the conversation, which is we appear to be very close to a deal, um, the United States, with the Taliban and finally ending our, what, 18-year involvement in that country. You have spent the better part of your career dealing with um, groups like the Taliban, international terrorism, and the fallout from 9-11. What is your reaction to the deal uh, that uh, is being discussed? We we would be withdrawing all of our troops, I think 5,000 at first, but ultimately all of them, agreeing to uh, let the Taliban be involved in some power-sharing arrangement um, in Kabul. What do you make of it? I think, look, uh, I, more than anyone else, I want to end the war in Afghanistan and bring the troops home, right? So, but also at the same time, I am very concerned about the way we're negotiating. We're not including yet the Afghani government in the negotiations. It's only between the United States and the Taliban. The Taliban continue to believe that the Afghan government are basically a bunch of traitors and puppets for the U.S., and they don't want to meet with them, right? So now, to be fair to the deal that uh, Khalil Zaida is, uh, is, is doing in, in Doha, part of the agreement is for them to initiate negotiation with the Afghan government. The Taliban wanted to meet with the Afghan government representatives on Norway in their personal capacity, not in their official capacity, because they don't they recognize, don't recognize them. the government over there. So how they deal with that and how they, you know, create that dialogue between the Taliban and the Afghan government, that's something yet to be seen. If we continue the negotiations only between us and between the Taliban, that is not a withdrawal. That is another Saigon. That's how I see it, because we're telling the Afghani government, we're telling the Afghani security forces, we're telling the Afghani army, we're out of here. And everybody remember what happened to Najibullah when the Taliban took Kabul and how they hung him from from, from, a, lamppost. from a lamppost. So the Taliban today control most of Afghanistan. They control more provinces in Afghanistan than any time since 2001. Since, uh, since, really? Yeah. So they are in a position of power today. So they, 18 years after U.S. troops in uh, more uh, provinces are controlled Afghanistan, by Afghanistan, yeah, right. the Taliban has right. more territory yeah. today than it did than at the time. To, well, no, no, since since the, since, since the they lost Afghanistan back in 2000, because yeah. right. at one point they were you know <laughs> they were the country, control. right? Yeah. So now, how are we going to bring the Afghani government to the table? How are we going to convince the Taliban to 
negotiate with the Afghani government? How are we going to convince the Taliban to participate in an election? Right? Because if they don't want an election, that means they want a hostile takeover of the government. And that's exactly what's going to happen if they don't agree on a lot of these things. Look, I And a hostile takeover of the government means... We're pre- pulling out. They're taking Kabul, and uh, Ghani and, will be like Najibullah. And, and, you know, <laughs> that's that's basically right. in in a, in a simple. Term. And the repression of women. Yeah, absolutely. And Everything. No is human go. rights. Yeah. I mean, and uh, potentially the Taliban. I mean, ISIS saying. is 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 uh, is rooted in in Afghanistan yeah, now and could be protected say, hey, by them. Uh, all these things, human rights, women rights. It's all Sharia. It's all protected yeah. by Sharia. Yeah. Their version of Sharia. We've seen their version of Sharia before 2001 when they control. Afghanistan. So, look, I think if you wanted to have a peaceful transition in Afghanistan, it's not only between the Taliban and the U.S. You have to bring all the different ethnic groups. You know, the Hazara need to be involved, the Tajik, uh, the, all the different factions of the Pashtuns, not only the factions that's under the Taliban, and so forth. Uh, you know, so we have many different ethnicities in Afghanistan, as you know. But also, at the same time, when you start bringing all these people, you have to bring the countries that's supporting them. So Iran need to be on the table, Pakistan, India, China, Russia. And if we don't do this, then the only thing we're doing is moving ourselves from uh, the formula mm-hmm. after we spend dear treasure and blood to create a new system, to create a new Afghanistan, a new security environment in Afghanistan. The people who are doing this, what I just talked about, a regional agreement on Afghanistan, are the Russians. And in February, they had a meeting in Moscow where different opposition groups, the Taliban, Iran, uh, Pakistan, uh, China, Russia, all of them were involved in a regional uh, conference on Afghanistan. So I am very fearful that if we pull out from Afghanistan without a clear understanding of uh, the transition, of uh, the role of the Afghan government, of uh, elections, and will Taliban participate in an election that they don't believe elections are Islamic or according to Sharia law? How other countries are going to be involved in Afghanistan after we leave? I feel we will be just betraying the people who put all their eggs in our basket. And once again, giving up uh, American influence Absolutely. Um, in, in the region. Absolutely. So we should not be withdrawing the troops that I, president I think, is planning on I, I withdrawing. think we look I, I, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the question I think we should withdraw but we should withdraw in a smart way not in just negotiating a deal with the Taliban you know we need to you know it, it's not enough to say hey Taliban uh, are you disconnecting your relationship with al-Qaeda oh yeah 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 we will do that okay see you later yeah. and I hope that won't happen I hope that we have a lot of things in place I'm very optimistic about trying to do a meeting in Norway with the Afghan government, but then what about all the different factions of the Afghan government, the different ethnic groups, uh, uh, the countries that support these ethnic groups, what's going to happen to all of them? I mean, this is not as simple as just having a negotiation between Taliban and us. It, it is more complicated. And, and the Afghan, the Pakistanis have interests, the Iranians have interests, the Russians have interests, the Indians have interests. A lot of times these interests contradict with each other. And now we are the, you know, basically the, we have a lot of power in Afghanistan. And if we pull out by surrendering our power to the Taliban, 
that is going to weaken American influence in the region for decades to come. One other matter I want to ask you about. We got the news the other day that the military commissions down in Guantanamo have set a trial date for uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the rest of the 9-11 conspirators for 2021. How so, many trial dates they uh, have now? Well, uh. I think it's the first time it's formal trial. I know there's been two indictments leveled against this time and arraignments. In fact, I've covered two arraignments down there. But look, this is, so 2021, that would be 20, 20 years, years yeah. after the 9-11 attacks. We finally get a trial. Well, let's see what happens. happens. I, I heard many times before that we set trial dates for something. Yeah. I mean, how many times you set trial dates for the coal and then it delays? Right. And, well, and, you know, right. You worked it. the coal yeah. case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the, the, I mean, the guy you identified. They're waiting for these guys to die in jail, man. Yeah. It's just like, you know, there is no trial. Right. Around. Right. I mean, do you think it'll ever come off? I don't know. I, I hope. I hope for the sake of the families, for the sake of all these people who were murdered. I mean, think about it this way. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is the biggest mass murderer in the 21st century. He admitted. Right. He's proud of what he did. He admitted that he masterminded the 9-11 attack. And for almost 18 years, he has been in jail in Guantanamo Bay. And we cannot prosecute him. Well, What's if, wrong? well we we could have prosecuted him. We if could we have pursued an a prosecution in an Article uh, Three civilian and, court. And and I wrote about that, and I put even an op-ed in the New York Times about that. You know, <laughs> Article Three. But we're talking about the reality as it is. The reality as it is, they put them in Guantanamo, thinking they are going to be tough on terrorism, and they are getting fat and happy. And you know, every now and then we see a picture of him with his mm. red beard. And where the heck is he getting that dye? You know, and, uh, and 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 he's like all healthy and big, and he's it, like it, making a mockery yeah, out of our system. Well, I always thought that, that this was the biggest mockery, legal mockery and fiasco, and perhaps in American uh, judicial history. And, and I tell the you, idea there's, that there's there's one reason military. behind yeah. it. One reason. One word. Torture. You know, we did something, and we have no idea how to do court case without talking about torture. That's it. And that's it. That's, that's and where we are, And it was torture that uh, you, Ali, tried to stop, as documented in that brilliant article <laughs> on the wall over there uh, Like, you know what? Newsweek my my, yeah. my own experience and my own, you know, firsthand uh, involvement, uh, we did not get information from torture. We got information from regular techniques used by the intelligence and law enforcement communities that techniques have been using for decades and decades all the stuff that has been in public about uh, waterboarding, about uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, about uh, stuff that the president in 2006, President Bush said, uh, you know, Pedia and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the so-called dirty bomb, all these kind of things we did not get because of EIT nor because of torture. And I'm the only one who actually was able to raise his right hand in Congress and testify to that uh, effect. As, um, as you know, we and, all and, remember. And I think it's yeah. worth, uh, particularly on, on this podcast, pointing out that it was uh, uh, Bob Mueller who listened to you right. um, and who kept the FBI out of the torture business. Yep, exactly. Um, at a time when the CIA exactly. and other agencies uh, were, were this involved. Is, this is when we were doing Abu Zubaydah, and when he figured out that, you know, when we reported to him, this is what's happening, he uh, basically pulled us out and pulled the FBI out of uh, all the uh, 
black sites, uh, and the FBI were not involved in any um, um, torture. But coming full uh, circle to the beginning of this conversation, he did not leak memos to the New York Times about this. <laughs> right. yeah. Maybe you should have. Ali Ali Sufan. Thank you so much for, uh, no, once again, you. being our guest on Skullduggery. No, thank yeah. you. It's always a pleasure to see you guys and talk to you. We are joined now by Paul Barrett, the deputy director of NYU's Center for Business and Human Rights and the author of the rather alarming new report, Disinformation and the 2020 Election, How the Social Media Industry Should Prepare. Paul, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. You, uh, Iskoff, you forgot an illustrious part of his resume, which is that Paul is a former Justice Department beat reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Sort of like you and me at yeah, one it's time, a, right? Yeah, it's an elite, yeah. right, an elite uh-huh. club here, yeah. <laughs> of former D- DOJ reporters. Yeah. But it means uh, that he'll be able to answer a lot club. of questions that we routinely talk about. And a feed core of impudent snobs, to coin a phrase, <laughs> once used by Spiro Agnew. Um, anyway, Paul, so um, fascinating report. You know, we started off the show by playing that distorted video of uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in which it's deliberately slowed down to make her seem stupid and slurring her words and older than she uh, already is. Or drunk. uh, Or drunk. And what's interesting is, as you point out in the report, YouTube took that video down. That's correct. But Facebook did not. Explain why not. Yeah, Facebook was following its policy for false content. Under that policy, Facebook is looking for false content, trying to identify it, but when they find it, they basically demote it and annotate it. And by that, I mean they push it down in the news feed so far fewer people will see it, they claim, by 80%. And And they label it. And they label it and tell you, if you you try to share it, that this is false news and you, you shouldn't share it. But they leave it there available to be shared, to be liked, and to move around their site. And it's to my mind and to the mind, I think, of many people, a peculiar policy. If they've gone to the trouble of identifying it as false, why not just take it out altogether? Now, for comparison purposes, to just think about the situation, think of the New York Times or the, or the Washington Post. If, if they've identified a piece of information as false, they wouldn't go ahead and publish it anyway. Now, Facebook is not identical to the New York Times, but on the other hand, Facebook is not just like a, a you know a, a, a set of plumbing pipes or something with no thought at all going on. But, but I, this I, goes this goes to their whole sense of who they are, their identity. It does. And they they've always been adamant that they are not. They're not publishers. They're not the media. You know, they are this. They're platforms, and they're there right. for the benefit of all Americans and people around the world to connect and freely express themselves. That's right. But I think they're actually something in between publishers and a passive platform. They are making choices all the time. They're taking down and removing hate speech because that's what they do under their guidelines. They're taking down bullying and harassment. As of more recently, they are promising to take down voter suppression material. So they are capable of identifying a lot of this kind of material through a combination of their AI, artificial intelligence-driven filters, and and human oversight. But they choose not to, in large part for the reason you're saying, that I think they're intimidated by the prospect of being made responsible for uh, overseeing a lot more of what goes on their site. This Pelosi example, I think, also points up a really interesting and important point that you make in this report, which is that what has dominated the conversation of, around disinformation 
has been foreign intervention, states like Russia that you know intervened in our, in our election and manipulated social media. What your report says is that we should expect a lot more of this, you know, malign activity starting here in the United States domestically, and that's in some ways a bigger challenge legally, right? It, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> when you have material running from coming from St. Petersburg and the Internet Research Agency run by uh, the Russians, and you have Russians pretending to be Americans and putting out divisive material that's misleading from start to finish, what you do about that seems pretty straightforward. You remove that. They're being deceptive. They're foreigners trying to affect our elections. And, you, if, and you may actually indict those people, as Robert Mueller did. Exactly. Right? It may be a, a, a conspiracy to commit fraud on the United States. Absolutely. But when you have domestic actors doing the same thing, it looks superficially a lot more like ordinary, nasty American politics. And you begin to think, well, is there a problem with free expression here? Is there even a First Amendment problem? And you need to sort of very carefully unpack all of that and sort through it to see that, well, sometimes it might be uh, advisable to leave uh, material in place because it is just sort of dirty politics. But in other cases, if it's flat out just false, it would be permissible to take it down. Well, look, I mean, a lot of campaign ads are deceptive and misleading right. in many ways. Right. We don't generally censure them. That's so right. this is a tricky issue Absolutely. As to how I, you handle this. I'm not suggesting that this is that there's an easy fix for this uh, or that the or that the platforms can cure this o- overnight and at scale. The question is, is what you do when you are confronted with particular instances where your algorithmic filters and or your human reviewers, your, your, your content moderators basically bring you something and say, we think this is totally false. And you stare at it, you think about it, and you decide as quickly as possible, is it totally false or is it on the other side of the line? And these are going to be often be difficult but decisions. But sticking with Isikoff's example, I mean, if a political campaign mm-hmm. is putting stuff out on Facebook or other social media platforms that are, I think to use the phrase in your report, demonstrably false, I mean, should that be taken down? I mean, we've, we've been, I mean, we've been ex- trying to expose that. That's, a, that's the job that journalists do. Right. But should social media platforms go after campaigns in that way? No. I think that's where the idea of, of something being provably false, I think, is, is of some value. Just to sort of illustrate things, I I have the contrasting examples in in this report and in other reports I've written where you can look at something like the uh, Sandy Hook massacre didn't really happen. The children were crisis actors. Was and that was a false flag operation. That was a false flag Something operation. Something pushed by Alex Jones of Infowars Correct. on a regular basis for quite some time. Correct. So that, on the one hand, I think actually is removable, even though some people would say it's just his opinion. But, but you could factually prove that that didn't happen, just like you could factually prove that the Holocaust did happen. So if someone is basically using the existence of the Holocaust as, as, as an issue, I think you can fairly remove a fraud about that. On the other hand, if President Trump says something along the lines of the Democrats are in favor of open borders and crime, well, that's not really true, but you can't really prove what the Democrats are in favor of. And so I would just say you should err on the side of of leaving that in place. Look, the bigger picture from your report is just how more sophisticated disinformation operations are becoming. We, mm-hmm. we have spent so much time talking about what the Russians did in 
2016. Uh, your, uh, your report shows that things are moving in many more sinister ways. So, right. first of all, it's not just the Russians now. The Iranians have been involved in right. disinformation operations in the United States. The Chinese have, are expected to. Domestic actors inside the United States are doing using some of the same tactics. I mean, what should we expect in 2020 and how dangerous a threat is this to the upcoming election? Yeah, I think we can expect a fair amount of chaotic activity where things are being projected via social media and it will be difficult for people to sort out whether they're true or false. That's one thing. I think the dangers are a specific direct campaign to, for example, target a particular candidate with, for example, a false video, perhaps even a a so-called deep fake video that is generated by artificial intelligence and is very difficult to uh, identify as being fake. I think that's a, a kind of direct threat. More broadly, there's an indirect threat, which is just the underscoring of the cynicism that already exists. The fact that I think voters, there's a great danger that voters will, out of frustration, simply step back from the process altogether and not and not engage in it, be wow. driven away from it because of their uh, rising cynicism. A couple of points I want to ask you about. First of all, you, you mentioned deep fake. Now, you right. pointed out to me as we were getting ready that the Pelosi video was a fake video, but it wasn't a deep fake video. Right. Why not? And what is a deep fake Right. Deep fake video, it comes from a combination of the term deep learning with fake. And deep learning is a subset of artificial intelligence. And most deep fake videos use artificial intelligence basically to first create a fraudulent video from material that depicts the target you're going to be going after, and then with another source of video imagery that can be projected onto the target, so you end up with someone seeming to be doing something they didn't actually do or saying something they didn't say. Can you give an example of that? Have there been any, I mean, what's a deep fake video that's actually been out there? Yeah, there was one last spring that was pretty convincing of Mark Zuckerberg that turned up on Instagram that showed him giving a talk where he seemed to be nefariously talking about taking over all data and privacy and and issues like that. The video was visually convincing because the creators of it were not actually trying to, to persuade people that Mark Zuckerberg had lost his mind or was a master villain. They used this sort of amusing script that went along with it. It was satire. It, it was, wasn't, yeah. It, it was in that case. And actually it was left up, I mean, in large part because it was clearly satire. There's another well-known deep fake video that uses former President Obama's image and the uh, comedian and movie director and actor uh, Jason Peel voices President Obama saying some outlandish and, and fascinating things that he didn't really say. Uh, Again, it's sort of medium convincing, but in the laboratory, so to speak, academics and others are showing that it is now possible to use this technology to make very convincing false videos. And you could see one of these videos emerging the day of an election, for example, for a particular candidate. The impact that something like this can have in the last 
days or hours right. of an election is enormous and truly scary because uh, it takes time to call the creators of these fake videos out, you know, before they're discovered. And in the meantime, they could be all over social media. That's exactly right. That's that's kind of the, the direct threat. But then, then there's the more general threat, which is if we have a series of these, say, deep fake videos that keep cropping up over time and there are a series of disputes and debates over what's true and what's not true, that creates an overall environment, I think, where people are just alienated from the process. And for point of comparison, maybe think about, you know, the way politics such as it is works in Russia, where people are very, very alienated from the process. You know, Putin wins with 90 plus percent majorities, um, and no one really believes anything about what's going on. Well, we, I, I fear that we are moving in small steps in that direction. So this is potentially a real threat for media companies because, so. you know, the way, you know, we try as hard as we can to verify every video that we run, and obviously, but, you know, we're, we're an aggregation company, and, and uh, what do you do if you're, a, if, you know, an editor at a media company and you're trying to discern whether... Uh, a video is real or not. How can you fight against this? Well, there are artificial intelligence programs specifically designed to detect deep fakes that can see the earmarks of it digitally and cause uh, something suspect to be flagged. But I think the the main answer is you have to go a little bit more slowly. I mean, before you put something that seems outrageous, you know, the, the candidate uh, appearing drunk at the child's, you know, little league game, you just you don't put it up. You have to figure out whether it really happened. Now we, we mentioned uh, domestic actors getting involved in this space, and you give a very important case study: the New Knowledge Matter. New Knowledge is a uh, Austin, Texas-based social media research firm funded by Democrats who launched something called Project Birmingham to intervene and help manipulate and swing voters in the Alabama special election between Roy Moore and Doug Jones. And they set up fake Facebook pages and Twitter accounts. Tell us what they did and um, what we know about it. The basic goal was to confuse conservative Alabama residents, Republicans, over who to vote for and to dissuade them from voting for the actual main Republican candidate who happened to be this uh, controversial fellow, Roy Moore. And they did that in a variety of ways. In one case, they basically created a write-in campaign that they hoped would divert Republican votes to a hopeless write-in candidate and that that would hurt more. In another instance, there was an effort to set up a false Facebook organization that was allegedly pushing for a dry Alabama. And the idea, again, was to alienate Republican voters, moderate Republican voters, business people and others. Created by Baptist teetotalers, supposedly. Uh, uh, And associating that with with more, thinking thinking that if if you elect more, this is the future for your your state. All the the Republicans (coughs) at the country clubs who enjoy their martinis and uh, vodka and tonics after work would be alarmed if they thought that Roy Moore was was on this, wanted a statewide alcohol ban. Exactly. Um, So this was complete phony stuff, very much like what the Russians were doing in 2016, only this was liberal Democrats. Yeah. What was their justification for doing it? 
Well, their facial justification was that they were doing an experiment to see how all of this might work, that they were not trying to uh, throw the election for the Democratic candidate. I have to say that that claim just seems you know, totally implausible. They may have initially gotten involved out of curiosity as to how it all might unfold, but I think once they were in the thick of it, they had to have been you know, pulling for the, the Democrat. They were funded by Democratic donors. Yeah. Uh, Reed Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, right. was a big backer of this. And there was a former Obama administration guy who was running it. Have there been any consequences of that? Has there been any investigation? Has anybody paid any price for this phony stuff? Not that I know of. Well, uh, I mean, were any laws broken? I mean, how, what do you investigate? Well, I mean, I suppose you could you could... I mean, I'm not a prosecutor, so I, I want to. Seems like with an FEC here. violation. They're, they're spending money to influence an election under phony pretenses. Did they, did they report it? Did they disclose what they were doing? Doug Jones, who was elected in that in that special election, called for investigations. I'm not sure that he really pursued that very vigorously. And so far as I know, uh, nothing has happened. And the uh, CEO of New Knowledge remains at the company. I mean, when I reached out to him just to, you know, get comment, that's where I found him, at the company. And so. Right. so for me, one of the fascinating kind of revelations in this report is the role that Instagram plays in disinformation. And the, you know, I think the outsized role that Instagram played in the, in the Russian manipulation of the election and these Instagram memes. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about how Instagram is used uh, for these purposes. Well, it's very much what you just described. To a greater degree than most people realize, disinformation is perpetrated via images, not by extensive text. Mostly, a, you know, a still image with a with a caption superimposed a, a across the bottom or the top or both. That's Instagram's bread and butter. That's what Instagram e- exists for, in a sense. And it has was exploited uh, more than people understand in 2016. And I, you know, reluctantly predict that it will be exploited uh, again. And part of the reason is that Facebook, which owns Instagram, has not kept Instagram up to speed, even with what the main Facebook platform is doing in terms of fact checking and trying to filter out false material. They are now belatedly, they've said that they're, they're trying to do exactly that, get Instagram up to speed. But that's relatively late in the game. And so we'll, they've been we'll a negligent how, parent. Yes, I think I think that's uh, that's a fair characterization, and they're trying to uh, make up for that now. Why, also, why didn't we see a lot of um, of this kind of disinformation in the 2018 uh, midterm elections? That's a good question, and I I don't have a, a certain answer for it. I think it, it's fair to speculate that the Russians, to choose just one vector of disinformation elected to keep their powder dry, that without, without a clear, you know, single candidate to get behind, as they did in 2016 with Trump, who, who they clearly favored over Hillary Clinton, it was, I think, perhaps less obvious to them, and I'm just speculating here, how to do good, you know, help Trump in, in the much more complicated setting of congressional midterm election. Another factor that may have played a role at the margin was, you know, a relatively new operation within the Pentagon, known as the Cyber Command, was able for a few days reportedly to basically knock the Internet Research Agency offline. So that might have rattled them. That might have rattled them. There was also reporting that they 
may have reached out directly to individual trolls within the IRA and basically indicated to them, we know who you are, we know where you live, that kind of thing. None of this has been confirmed in a press conference setting by the government, but some of that activity is clearly going on. Right, so that, that may that have played shadow a kind of cat and mouse game yeah. is fascinating. Um, you also talk about WhatsApp scare tactics. Right. Explain that. Yeah. The concern there is that WhatsApp was badly abused in recent presidential elections in both Brazil and India, where it was the platform of choice for spreading all kinds of false rumors, false photographs was used by campaigns in those countries. And so given that it's been shown that the platform can be used this way, and this is, of course, a very different kind of platform from the ones we've been talking about. This is not a public platform where you post things that lots of people can see. It's a messaging platform where the content is actually encrypted from from end to end, as it's, uh, so to speak. But even in, in that supposedly more private connection, WhatsApp was abused. Now, there are a couple qualifications to that and reasons why Facebook believes it's less likely to happen in this country. WhatsApp is less popular in proportional terms in the United States than it is in Brazil or, or India. It just hasn't caught on a, as much in, the, in this country. By the way, also owned by Facebook, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. That's right. And secondly, Facebook has, has taken a couple of laudable steps to reduce the reach of WhatsApp, specifically by limiting the number of WhatsApp groups you can forward material to at one time. It used to be that you could actually get material out on WhatsApp to tens of thousands of people, you know, with, with basically, you know, one click. Wow. Um, that's no longer possible. But we recommend in, in, in this uh, report that they actually reduce that down to one, that it, wow. at, at, one, at one click you can only uh, reach one WhatsApp now, look, I mean, the basic thrust of your report is that social media companies need to do a lot more, you know, starting yes. with Facebook, of course. But look, the other side of the coin is, do we really want to deputize Facebook and these other Silicon Valley companies uh, the power to censure what we read and what we see? Yeah. Well, it's and a, who are they to decide to be the determiner? You know, well, uh, the answer is who are they? They are the guys who own and operate the the platforms. And I view it from the perspective that if they're going to be a lot, if they're going to operate those platforms, they need to do that responsibly. Your question is is a fair one, but I guess part of another part of the answer is they are already superintending these platforms. Not. Anything doesn't just go. They have rules against a significant number of categories of harmful content that they say just doesn't uh, go on in our, you know, walled off area that we take care of. This includes hate speech. It includes bullying. It includes child pornography and voter suppression material and on and on. And I think it's necessary, it it turns out, if you're going to run a large social media platform, it's necessary to have some type of oversight. Otherwise, all hell breaks loose. Some would say the real answer is to break them up. Right. Well, and, and I'm, yeah, I'm not sure the government are talking if about you had, that. If you had yeah. many more mini Facebooks, I'm not sure you'd have less of this kind of mischief. Um, but certainly the fact that the platforms have not been successful in controlling uh, disinformation and other kinds of harmful content has added fuel to the demands to, to break them up. So, uh, Paul, you also um, suggest that um, ultimately users 
have some responsibility themselves yes. to uh, to become more savvy, more literate when it comes to uh, social media. Just in wrapping up here, what practical advice do you have to users out there about how to discern legitimate information from information that's manipulated? Well, I mean, I think the, the first general admonition would be, you know, think twice before you share. Don't just don't, if you're titillated by something, don't just immediately send it, uh, you know, to everybody on your contact list. Think about what, what you're doing. Second, I think individuals need to think about, you know, the qualities of the leaders that they uh, get behind. Is it okay for, for a, a leader or would-be leader to routinely twist the truth. Um, Any leaders in particular you're thinking of? Yeah, I would think of the uh, disinformation purveyor-in-chief, which is the, the right. president of the United States. Who so, so he's not just an expression of this problem. He is a, a driver. driver of the problem. That, that's exactly right. I mean, he is the, the main disinformation machine on Twitter. You know, the Washington Post keeps track of misleading and false claims he makes, and they're up to 12,000 during his time in office. And I think he has set a tone that has facilitated all of the bad behavior that we've been talking about. Well, I should point out that there is a video being made of this podcast, and I would invite AI specialists out there to um, do their own deep fake video, have Paul endorsing Donald Trump for president and praising well, Facebook, I, and then we could show it and as an example of the very threat and that, I, that he's warning about. I just like about. to say, just you know, yeah. get, to get ahead of the questions, yeah. These beards that we have now—it's yeah. not a deep fake. These are real beards. They're yeah. beach beards, but yeah. they're real. Yeah. Well, on that note, Paul, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Mike. Thanks to former FBI agent Ali Soufan and NYU's Paul Barrett for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku. Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.